Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamara Hadjak. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's, and I'm joined today by my lovely, lovely co-host. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite co-host. Yes, thank you, thank you. I don't think anyone's ever My called me one of- lovely. Uh, definitely not more than one time. So, um, thank you, Doctor Peter Liu <laughs> from Nationwide Children. How are you, Tamara? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Good, good. So it's July fourth, right? So happy yes. birthday to America. Um, yes. Do you have any plans? So my brother is a bachelor. Let me explain. (laughs) (laughs) So his wife and his children are visiting Jordan right now. So he's, uh, yeah, he's living alone in a big house. I'm going to go visit him for July 4th and eat a lot of seafood because him and I love seafood. His wife and children don't like seafood. So (laughs) we're going to go out in Chicago, eat a lot of seafood, Maybe watch some shows. Yeah. Um, I'll get him into some Broadway. He watched... Um, Peter, have you watched Ain't Too Proud? No, I don't do It Broadway. is so good. Also, I have no idea what um, that is. I've like, never heard of it before. It's about... So it's a Broadway show about the Temptations. Oh, okay. And it is so good. So I made yeah. him watch that and he uh-huh, loved uh-huh. it. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I have... Been to Broadway. I've, like, I've like watched Hamilton and like yeah. you know Les Miserables and that Ham- kind of, that kind of stuff. But it's not really my thing. But like eating is definitely my thing. And uh, you know I lived in Chicago for eight years. And man, Chicago's a you great did? food city. Yeah, for college and uh, medical really? school. Oh, so I didn't know. Yeah, that. I love Chicago. Um, That's cool. Maybe you'll give me some recommendations on restaurants. Yeah, I was thinking about seafood. Like I don't know if I have like great seafood racks. I think like. Ah, no, I don't. <laughs> I have a lot of like <laughs> other wrecks, but not necessarily okay, for seafood. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll talk. Although we'll talk. although there's like a New York, Chicago pizza kind of very fun, lighthearted rivalry. It's not lighthearted. Right? It's a full on <laughs> I mean so, so like I'm more of a like a New York pizza kind yeah. of person. Sorry. Yeah, I mean it's, it's different. It's different for sure. I don't. I different. like love all yeah. pizza. I don't judge. I like love all pizza. Uh-huh. In reality, one of my personal favorites is Detroit style pizza. So Jets pizza oh, is like really? a chain. Oh yeah. It's it's oh. it's also kind of more deep dish, but yeah, Chicago, Lou Malnati's, uh, undisputed mm. uh, t- best deep mm. dish Chicago pizza in my mind. Like yes, there are uh. several big you know chains but lumonati's it's the best so i just want to throw it out there what are you doing for july 4th um so every july me my parents my sister's family our family we go on like a little family trip so this year we're going back to california going to lake tahoe got a lake house stop by napa yeah that's pretty awesome it'll be fun like the kids are definitely way too young to enjoy anything there but we'll have fun so applications for the baby shark tank competition end in just a couple weeks. So if you have not applied, you got to do it. If it yes. hasn't been announced already, you know, the prize money just keeps on going up. And uh, Whoa. <laughs> who doesn't like prize money? Yeah. <laughs> or well, your cool ideas. I mean, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but, you know, you submit an abstract. 
you put in months, if not years of work into like doing a research study. And then, you know, you don't get any money for that. Maybe. It's true. Yeah, for it's most true. people. And then for the Shark Tank, though, it's like you have an idea. You just think about it a lot. There's no research being done. And you just right. sell it. And you can make like, I mean, it's not just about the money, but you get prize money and exposure and the... Our famous sharks will be listening to your idea and the whole community is going to hear about it. So I think it's an so awesome So I have a bunch of ideas. How many ideas can I submit? Uh, one. So best, best <laughs> one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the best one? Okay. Yes. Okay. So it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Like uh, I'll do that. Yeah. You'll see me among the applicants. Ooh. I, uh, <laughs> yes. So like uh, John Rosen, Encore Chug, they're the primary people doing it. So... They're going to be the ones figuring out how we're going to choose the finalists. But you should right. definitely apply. Everyone listening yeah, should apply. Yeah. And it'll be Absolutely. fun. It'll be fun. Like, honestly, we've been planning, like, some of the, even just the finalists or the top people. Maybe we'll uh, organize some events, like, or either virtually or in person there where, you know, you can meet, like, real entrepreneurs, people who have made startups, VCs, that kind of stuff to talk a bit more about how to take your idea and make it into like a real product. So yeah, do that. That's Baby pretty Shark awesome. Tank. That's pretty cool. Yeah, cool. if you've been thinking about an idea and wanting to know how to make it happen is a great first start. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right, what are we talking so, about today? So we're going to talk about transitioning from fellowship to attending ship. Is that a word? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah. Motilitist is not a word, but uh, attending ship, I think that's a Motilitist word. Motilitist is a word. <laughs> so this is going to come out on July 4th. The fellows already graduated. They are uh, excited, but a little nervous about being junior faculty. So we have this episode for them to listen to and just tell them that we've all been there and it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, as a junior faculty coming out of fellowship, I wish I had this episode, you know? I felt yeah. you kind of feel like you're alone, like the only person who's ever done this transition and trying to figure it out yourself. But everyone's right. been there. Everyone feels the same way. And what better guest to talk about it than the one and only Dr. Chris Lee from Boston Children's Hospital, head of our current like training committee, organized, who organizes all these fellowship conferences. Uh, she's also the director of the Fatty Liver Interdisciplinary Program and the program director of their Transplant Hepatology Fellowship Program at Boston Children's. She's the medical director of the Multivisceral Intestine Transplant Program, and of course, she's an attending pediatric gastroenterologist. I mean, she shares so much good knowledge. It's just kind of cool yes. to hear someone who's like very successful like her uh, think through like what she was dealing with, too, when she was making that transition. And like realizing right. that we were all in the same boat, you know. And she also talks she about... She was very fun to talk to. Yeah. And she also talks about the, the um, junior faculty conference coming up. Right, right, right. Which uh, we just realized that the application for it just ended back in May, right? Yeah, I, I think, think so. so. So maybe next year, just, yes. uh, just something to be aware of and look out for. It's going to be awesome. I think that all the hosts applied. No, Jason didn't qualify, but the rest of us all applied. <laughs> So hopefully we'll see you guys there. Uh, anyways, okay. Okay. On uh, to the show. On to the show. We got it. That's pretty one close. More time. All right. Uh, on to the <laughs> show. <laughs> it's worse when we try to do it. Now it's like, all right. Next next episode, we'll get it right. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Lee, welcome to Bow Sounds. Very excited to have you today. I'm super pumped. This is like the highlight of my week, my months. So thank you for the round. Hey, start with our first question. For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Okay, so I thought about this. I had help from my family. I'm a Korean American woman who's a wife and mom of two amazing kids who love the liver and medical education and who is, by my kids say, allergic to nature and exercise. <laughs> yeah. That's what I say about myself with exercise. We try, but it's not meant to be. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even sure I go as far as the try part, just allergic. You got to know yourself, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I respect that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and- no, I think this is uh, the second year fellows conference. Jose Garza last month had a joke and, and named the Camelback hike the first annual Chris Lee Camelback hike. And I'm like, <laughs> and you know, everybody else enjoyed the outdoors and exercise. And I, I was not going to do that. And once we got to the top, because I did it, even though against my better judgment and we almost died. But at the top, we had a little sign on our phones. Hashtag for Chris. So we were there in spirit. If we had a flag, we'd plant it at the top. But Because that is the only part of Chris that was ever going to make it to the top of camp. <laughs> Next time, maybe do a cutout cardboard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in reality, Photoshop, it was worth it. But the pictures capture the view. You know what I mean? Like, I feel anyways. Yeah. It was. I like, so you're not, I, what you're saying is you're not sure you'll do it again. That day while I was doing it, I was like, this is the worst decision I've ever made in my life. And then when I got to the top, I was like, still not worth it. But the next day I was that wasn't that bad. And, oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. See, I like hiking in the woods, not like when there's just not trees out there mm-hmm. and just dirt. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like more wood hiking. I think it was more your word for it. When we got to the top, we like ran out of water. Uh, like, oh, I don't know. This is not as fun when I'm like super dehydrated. Yeah. But yeah. OK, anyways, moving on to the second question, <laughs> just as important. Tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend to us. Or a hobby. Your choice. So my imposter syndrome is starting already because everybody gives these sophisticated, well-read recommendations. Alan Leitner even gave a recommendation to read the Soul of the Octopus book. Like Uh, I am so not that person. Yes. Me neither. (laughs) The closest thing I came to reading a book was watching Bridgerton. That's the closest (laughs) I came to it. <laughs> but excellent. I love that show. Uh, yeah. But the, the book I want to read, actually, and I just came across it, and Peter, I was going to see, is there's a book called Rise, a pop history of an Asian American. Yeah. Oh. Now. I have not read it, but I yeah. am aware of it because I follow that guy on Twitter. Yeah. So it's written by Jeff Yang, Phil Yu, and Philip Wong. And I'm thumbing through it, but I landed on this page. I'm like, I should read this book. It's a page that says the Asian American syllabus from the different decades. So I'm a child of the 90s. So the 90s syllabus was things like Joy Luck Club, uh-huh. Whitney Houston, Cinderella, where the, the Prince Charming was Asian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm about 10 years-ish older than you, Peter. So the 2000 <laughs> list may be your jam. It, it was like- I was alive in the crap. 90s. I remember I remember some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you were that quite of age, but the, the 2000 ones are like Grey's Anatomy, Christina Yang yeah. came on, on the Spike Lee and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Yeah. There's something for everybody. So that's what I'm going to read next. Oh man. Okay. So yes, I have to read that as well. That's a great recommendation. That's as academic and sophisticated as any of the other things we've heard sure. on the shows. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> it looks really cool. It, it's like all the things that bring back good memories. Yeah. Growing up. Yes. That's a great recommendation. 
Yeah. Gotta watch it. Gotta read it. Gotta watch it. Our topic today is about transitioning from being a fellow to a junior faculty. You wear many hats. You're chair of the training committee and you're program director, which is great and amazing. How did you become interested in fellows training and education? I think I owe so much of what I do to Alan Leitner. I applied to GI Fellowship because he was my faculty uh, on service when I was a resident. And then it was Alan who got me into fellows training education. I didn't have much experience before that. And it all started when I uh, was a GI fellow. We had a fellow steering committee for our institution. And so I was invited to be the fellow representative for my class by Alan. And my fellowship director at the time was Glenn Feruda. So I have tons of uh, fond memories. And it was really a fun introduction to medical education. It was always a table full of passionate, committed people trying to make training and education better. And it was always just uh, really fun times. There would always be a time of every committee meeting where the faculty would stop talking and they would turn to the end of the table where I was sitting with Kara Margolis and AC Lamuse Smith. And they'll be like, all right, what do you all think? And we would just bust out with all these things. These are all ideas. It was really fun because I realized I enjoyed and I was good at thinking about a problem critically, problem solving, advocating for other people. And at the time, Alan was the NASWIGAN training chair. And so I learned from him all the different programmatic challenges across NASWIGAN and how can we make it training for fellows better. And one of the things that he worked through as training chair at the time was the lack of matching process. So when I was a fellow, it was a rolling as you go application and there was no match. And so what he did on a national level and with all the other program directors is try to like, what's better for our trainees? It's a match. And nowadays we can't even imagine life before that. Mm. Um, but I think things like that were just really exciting. Learning from him, getting modeling of what could have been done collectively as a group of NASA began is really exciting. For all those reasons, I love medical education and fellows training. It's crazy because when Dr. Leitner was on our podcast, he explained how that wasn't training and medical education wasn't his original path. And then he decided like mid-career to switch to that. And now he's inspired so many of our other guests who are now leading the training in uh, pediatric GI, which is awesome. Um, yeah, I, I love, because I, he gets, he's so excited about it. You just, you can't help but be infected by that passion. And through Fellows Education, you get to meet lots of cool colleagues around NASA again. It's a good, it's a good thing. That's awesome. Okay. In preparing for this episode, Tamara sent some emails to fellows asking for questions. What are people wondering and worried about when they're transitioning from fellow to attending? I also have a billion questions. So I added, this is why <laughs> we have so many questions for this episode. But one of the most common ones was, okay, what can a senior graduating fellow do to prepare themselves for this transition to becoming a real GI doctor and attending? So like procedures, pretending work, extra clinics, things like that. Anything that you would recommend or that you wish you had done differently to make the transition smoother? Yeah, that's an amazing question. But I think before I answer that, we have to step back and give a huge hooray and congratulations to the graduating class of 2022. Yeah. Because they were the COVID GI class. Mm -hmm. They've gone through the pandemic and just remembering all the things that they had to go through. And, and to answer their perspective is to understand that they were only eight months into first year GI fellowship, right when they were hitting their stride, the world shut down. No procedures, no clinic, nothing. And then for fellows in the Northeast, they got deployed to adult COVID units. And so though all those things were happening for them, 
The other thing that I give huge kudos to these amazing fellows is that through our surveys of program directors, the research side also had to shut down too. So as they were finishing their first year and they were becoming a second year, what research product do you want to pick? They're like, what's open? What, what can I even possibly do? How can I develop a scientific career in the middle of a very scary pandemic? And then they also had to deal with all those downstream effects of they want to present. There's virtual conferences. There's the networking is more challenging. Both virtual poster sessions aren't quite the same than standing in and, and having conversation with future collaborators. So I think with that COVID fellowship experience, I want to try to answer and do due diligence and give them a lot of credit for what they're doing. Kudos to them. But I think for this class in particular, it's making this transition. What we've said at all our fellows conference is I caution them not to miss the important learning opportunities that only fellowship and the protection of fellowship will allow you. So I know you've had a later start with research. Maybe, maybe it was a little rockier road trying to find your footing, but stay focused on your scholarly work. Try to move them as far along as you could go. Complete your papers, complete your posters, and it'll enrich your life and career for the rest of your life. Because even if it's not what you're going to be doing, it'll make you a better leader. It'll make you a better educator and mentor. And so when a med student or resident down the road wants to work with you, you'll have, oh, I I learned so much during fellowship. And I think that can't be replicated uh, as easily when you're trying to start out as a faculty. Those are the things I usually uh, recommend. The clinics, the endoscopy, people have tallies in their heads of all the things that they want to do. And I think, again, being mindful of the things that you have committed to and you want to finish, try to maximize the stuff that you're already doing. So when you're in clinic, flip the script a little bit and think about if I were uh, attending by myself, and they've come in with IBD and this isn't working and that isn't working. Think about asking your mentors, why did you choose that drug and not this? And really have that, if this happened, then what? Rather than, okay, today we're getting labs. Tomorrow we're going to like think a little farther ahead. And I think it'll really help you. Why did you use rifampin for pruritus in this case and not others? And I think maximizing their, their precious time in these last couple of months of fellowship really make a huge difference. But between the three of us, we all have our regrets from those last couple of months yeah. of fellowship. <laughs> for me, I had a panic that I needed to hear people's spiels. Like I knew what I've said. People give me feedback on what I said in clinic. But it had been like a year and a half when I was a third year fellow when I heard you need a colectomy talk from Athos Pisparos. And so I remember showing up, I think it was like March or April, my third year, panicked. I I would just open Alan's uh, door. I would plop myself down without an appointment, unannounced, and say, talk to me like I'm a patient and just tell me what you say to them. Because in the art of their career, they have really gotten down to a beautiful arc of a story a beautiful arc of a spiel, and it, it just fits so well. And I, I was craving that. That's one thing that I think fellows could maybe gain from all of the wealth of the experience and the mentors. But I don't know what you all did, but that's, I remember that vividly. I just yeah. unannounced would show up. Yeah, I think that's great advice because one of the challenges as faculty is simplifying that difficult conversation, but not making it too simplified where patients don't understand that this is difficult and this is a challenging thing. So I also remember with Jeff Himes as he was discussing colectomies or switching biologics and I was like, oh, or like a new diagnosis of IBD. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. I wouldn't have thought about saying it this way. So yeah, I agree with that. That's yeah. uh, really great advice. 
And it's like, like I still want to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. It's so much harder as an attending to do that. Yeah. That's like an opportunity that's really unique to fellows. Yes, you could as an attending, but it's just not as easy. So no, I, I think that's a great suggestion and yeah. practical. It's all about the practice. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember I, I, I transitioned from fellowship to being an attending about two and a half years ago. And there was a lot of challenges. <laughs> One of the things that I remember is signing my first note and thinking, wait, there's nobody that's going to review this note. I just <laughs> sign it and that's it. <laughs> So uh, can you tell us what are the biggest unexpected challenges in transitioning becoming a junior faculty? A lot of what I think what we hear from fellows and junior faculty, exactly what you just talked about. It's when we look at the, the graduating fellows surveys, the majority of our fellows do take clinical jobs. And it's really that sudden lack of supervision, but also a in huge increase in clinical volume. I think most senior fellows have a cushier, more researchy life. Maybe you have one, maybe two clinics a week, and then you take on a clinical job and it just increases exponentially. And you can feel it in small and big ways. For me, it wasn't so much in the note process. It was, I missed being able to leave the room for five, 10 minutes and get my head on straight. But as an attending, you're in with a patient and I had to come up with an excuse to leave the room for me to go (laughs) check up Lexicom go check up to date just to make sure that I, I was pretty sure I didn't want to do, but I actually wanted to cement it down. And so a lot of times I would have to quote, go print something. Yeah. I would find <laughs> something different. It's like, I got to go pee again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would just have five, 10 minutes. And, and I was lucky, uh, very fortunate to work in a place where I went into the conference room and there were five of my mentors there also practicing. And I would be like, yo, <laughs> I got this patient and I, I think I, this is what I want to do next. Uh, what do you think? And it wasn't for every patient, but there were so those instances where I, I want to do that. So those are the small ways. In the big ways, I think the unexpected challenge is how your work can bleed into other things. Like mm-hmm. people often talk about at third year fellows conference, I want this much protected time. At some point, you, you're responsible for protecting it yourself and making sure your clinical volume, the patient calls this committee meeting that doesn't bleed into other things. And that is a challenge, especially for our colleagues who have big research focus. So when they're on, on service or when they're in clinic for that not to bleed into other things, I think it takes a lot of discipline and no one's telling you what to do when you're a faculty, you have to do it for yourself, which I think is, right. is a huge challenge. Yeah, I think, and also like bleeding into your personal life and your uh-huh. other things. I think, like you said, for me, it was also similar kind of, I did not anticipate what a full clinical job would be like. As a fellow, it's, oh, I have half day of clinic. I have four days to finish my notes. And as an attending, it's, wow, on Friday, wow, I have 25 notes to write. And you end up spending your evenings writing. So I think time management is a, was a big thing for me, at least, in trying to adapt. Yeah, for sure. And everyone has to figure it out for themselves, which I think is tough. Yeah. And then transitioning to our next question. So this kind of goes back to what you had mentioned about I think a lot of people have an idea like, oh, I want to start with 60% of my time protected for this little project I want to do. And I just want to do clinic. Obviously, that's just not possible. And so thinking a little bit more about like when you're selecting a job or thinking about what your job's going to be. So first of all, are there pros and cons to staying at the same institution versus leaving? And then also when you start How do you talk to people about, oh, this first job may not be like ideally what you have in mind, but these are the things that I would look for, for it to be like a good place to begin. I think everybody 
thinks about these questions and it's really a personal decision. When we poll the incoming third year fellows, all these things swirl around them. What's funny, the one thing that they say year after year that's the most important often is location of a position. And then it helps prioritize those other questions as to if location is really the number one factor in so many people's decisions, then, then it helps prioritize those other things. I think people reflecting on what's the most important. We talk about a lot of this at the Third Year Fellows Conference, so I encourage any rising third year fellows to definitely attend in Nashville in September. You get lots of one-on-one opportunities to talk about this, just talking it out to mentors and leaders who can reflect back what they're hearing from you to help you figure out this prioritization. I, I think that when it comes to staying or leaving, it's always tough thing. I, I am a, a creature of uh, sort of habit. Like, so I have to say I've stayed in the same place from Renzi Fellowship faculty. And for me, it was an easy decision to stay. We're a two career family. It was not just me. And, and both of our careers, you had to take that into account. I think when you stay, obviously, the EMR, how the backline to radiology, all the things that sometimes will grease the wheels of the day to make it a little bit easier. One of the challenges always is sometimes people forget where you are in your career development. I was guilty of this just the other day. One of my cardiology colleagues and I said, oh, are you graduating soon? And he was like, yeah, I've been uh, attending for about a year and a half. I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. things like that that are bound to happen. But leaving takes some preparation and deliberate and reaching out to people and making those connections. But you're seen as an attending as soon as you arrive. Uh, all those things are uh, really great. And it's exciting to see how medicine is practiced in, in multiple areas. And so you can gather the experience and the skills from all the people and places that you've met. Those are all the things that people should think about. But in the end, I think it's such a personal choice as to what kind of job you want. Another thing that comes up with fellows conferences is keeping an open mind for the kind of jobs there are out there. We practice in academic places because fellowships are uh, by nature in academic places, but there are a lot of wonderful jobs in the private practice area, in other hospital-based practices. And even some of our Anaspian fellows have gone straight to the FDA right out of fellowships. Thinking outside the box, don't count anything out, keep an open mind and learn more about it. And I think you'll be surprised sometimes what the best fit is. I was one of the faculty that left. I was in Connecticut and then I moved here to Cincinnati. So it was challenging transitioning, being a junior faculty in a new institution. So as you receive somebody from a new institution, what tips do you give that person on how to navigate a new institution? How do they find a mentor, research project? Who do they ask for help? How do they find the people to ask for help? So what are your uh, recommendations on that? What are your advice on that? I think the first thing is to say you're not alone. There are so many friends and people you can reach out to that can be your support, even if it's not necessarily local. I think as we all learn every year it goes by, it's such a small community and a supportive community that you can always reach out to somebody. You won't be the first person to come from outside of that institution and there'll be someone to help you. And maybe not always in your division, but just like a, like a compadre in another place that can help you understand that area. But a lot of divisions are more mindful of having an onboarding process for people who come outside and uh, to be that resource and knocking on doors and asking clinical questions. You can get a ga gauge about who is probably open to just asking maybe what you think are smaller questions that you, you don't want to send them an email necessarily, but you just, just cast it off and see and have someone help you. I think in the pandemic, surely this was a challenging time. So for tomorrow, yeah. in the last two and a half years, it must have been extra challenging because you have yeah. to 
be more deliberate about reaching out. Everyone's on Zoom. No one's in their office in those early days. And so kudos to you for being able to make that transition beautifully. But there's always people to help you. And when it comes to the larger questions of mentoring and collaboration, Steve Guthrie always gives a great talk at the Third Year Fellows Conference. In addition to like the tips of get your paperwork done on time and all those things, he also talks about announcing your arrival in like the first 100 days, going to grand rounds, talking to people in the aisles, giving a grand rounds in the first or second year of your your time there, reaching out to referring practices, give them a talk. You can announce your arrival in so many ways. And I think it makes this process of going to a new institution uh, much more manageable. That's great advice. Yeah. Like even if you're staying at the same institution, that'd be a good way to Right. Have people recognize hey, that? Oh, I'm actually here. attending now. <laughs> yeah, it's happened so many times because I've stayed here since you know I did my residency, and uh, there's so many times where like in the ICU, someone's bleeding, and they're like, "So when's your attending gonna?" Oh, I'm actually I've been attending for four years now. Thanks. <laughs> Make sure to change you the signature on your email too. <laughs> <laughs> attending in all caps. But, uh, but I say I think the time warp the the pandemic like I on it has been a year or two years like you you haven't seen people so you forget the natural transitions and the those things have always been interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The next couple of questions that we plan to ask are related in a way, and yeah. the, the first one is I have to confess it's a personal question for me that we touched on a little bit, but I think one of the biggest surprises for me was like how my schedule changed from. A third year where most of the time was like for research and I was like working out every day, hanging out, doing what I wanted. And then all of a sudden, oh man, I have to like work every single day, all day. And then (laughs) so, um, but for you, like thinking back, how did your time and schedule change once you became an attending is maybe a little bit different because you came from a transplant hepatology fellowship, but how did you adjust and what, what kind of surprised you the most about your day-to-day schedule change? So the biggest challenge for me going from fellowship to faculty is similar to you, Peter, is that I became a mom within the first couple of months of being a faculty. Mm -hmm. Fellowship was that, you know, like, yeah, maybe you leave at six or 630. So you have dinner late. So what? You didn't really have any sort of cascade of effects. And then I became a mom the first couple of months of uh, faculty. So the first couple of years of junior faculty are a very happy blur. But in the last couple of months of Transplant Fellowship, my husband and I started the adoption process. And because we knew it could take some time, it's unpredictable. And then we were so thrilled when we got um, paper matched with this beautiful baby, like the month before Transplant Fellowship graduation. But we didn't know when it was going to be in actuality. So some of the planning for being the mom, we had some time. So like when they asked, when do you want your clinics? Dave and I purposely chose different clinic days. He's an oncologist. And so we knew that if you're going to do drop off, pick off on this day, then like Tuesdays are my day. And, and so we had it all split out. But then you didn't know when you were going to be able to go travel to bring your child home. Yeah. And at the time, the notifications happened and then you got an email. And within seven days, you're supposed to be in country. We have a seven day window. Wow. Which I, you know, I, I know it's just it's just for as a planner, that was really a tough thing for me to plan <laughs> for. Right. And then suddenly I was on maternity leave and that that happened like only eight weeks into being a junior faculty and attending. For me, the schedule thing was almost instantaneous. I came back from leave and then trying to plan when I was going to leave to go pick them up at daycare was a really big thing. Suddenly for any parents of young toddlers and babies know, like being off by 30 minutes is a big deal in how happy the kid is. 
Like you get either have a happy kid and going to bed and bath on time, or you have the melting down right. yeah. parent. And it makes a huge difference. And being more like exacting about what happens at the end of the day and then shifting my workflow, maybe leaving clinic. I haven't checked my emails. My notes are undone. And then you have to shift it to later in the evening. So just like many parents, but that was big for me. It took me a while to figure that out. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with the daycare time <laughs> deadline. 5.30 every day, I, I'm out. I don't, Yeah. like, yes, they charge a fee if we're late, but also it's like the walk of shame coming in and like the teacher's <laughs> like, well, Emma's still here by herself, you know? <laughs> She's pissed off. And, and yes, I think there's so many reasons. But also, so thinking about like practical tips, like I mentioned before, I feel like notes was a big problem. And we have a little email that goes out. It's like a list of shame if your notes are late. And I was like, I yeah. cannot be on the list. So one thing is, so now, my patient instructions, I write them very detailed. It's like essentially my assessment and plan. Copy it, make a little bit of adjustments so I put my thinking in there. But yeah, my uh, notes seem weird because like when you get to the plan, it's written for the family. And sometimes yeah. I just write like discuss the following plan with the family. But I feel like that saves so much time. Yeah, and, uh, it is so key. Yeah. yeah. So I guess like having dot phrases. Yeah. That's the first thing I did when I started as a new faculty. I just used the dot phrases that I can see. I went and asked people who have really good dot phrases, can I use your dot phrases? Modified them and that helped me a lot. One of the things that I thought that helped me a lot finish my notes. When I was in fellowship, I used to write on book with a pen and paper during the clinic. Mm. But then I learned to type as the patient was talking in my note. And my concern with that was that would I not be able to make eye contact with the patient or they would be upset because I'm on the computer. But I think that patients are more understanding of that when you say, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to type everything that you say so it's in your record and I don't have to ask you again. And then I've learned how to look at the patient and type, which might be very weird. <laughs> no, like staring at the patient and typing. <laughs> you guys see it like that. That's really great. I feel like that helped a lot with, so I type everything, I just read it, uh, my notes are concise, and my assessment is concise, and then that made a huge difference for me with finishing up the notes. Yeah. And that's kind of like the next question we were talking about is, so from your standpoint, what advice do you have about like managing workload, time, in-basket, work-life balance, the infamous term that we always talk about that's like impossible <laughs> to achieve? But yeah, what do you think about that? You mentioned a little bit scheduling clinics to balance with your partner or your husband, whoever it is. But yeah, what do you think? What advice do you have about that? I think you all don't need me to be because those are amazing, <laughs> amazing tips for everybody. But I, I think the first thing is when it comes to work-life integration, nobody has it down perfectly. Like we're all right. trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what's best for your personal life and 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 prioritizing that to make sure it doesn't bleed into that. And then just realizing your work tendencies, I think for me was a big deal. Like I'm big on deadlines. If you give me three hours to do the task or one hour to do the test, I will take up the entire time you give me. And so sometimes it's at work as much as, as social as I want to be. Sometimes I do have to shut the door and I literally set alarms on my phone to say, you have one hour to do this task and I will get it done because there's a deadline. 
But if you tell me I have all afternoon, I will squirrel away the afternoon and do that one task. And things like that are, are really important. But the other thing, building on what you said, Peter and Tamara, is trying to figure out a way you can communicate and document the best plan for your patient. But I would take it one step further. I think in order for me to be as efficient as I can be, it means also as a faculty employing my multidisciplinary team. And they can only help yeah. me or they can only communicate well to patients when I have dictated or documented, if this doesn't work, this is my next step and this is the yeah. next dose. Yep. And this is what I think. And so that my nursing staff, my transplant coordinators, they all, or we already know what, where you're headed. Mm -hmm. And that makes you infinitely a better, stronger team. And that team part wasn't something that fellows really tapped into a lot. Cause you know, you, you did all the phone calls, you had plenty of time. You called patients, you had multiple conversations, but now we need our teams and, and, and they need us to actually communicate and document appropriately. And I also yeah. think like writing the next steps helps you because uh -huh. like you get the message remember. like, yeah. uh, oh, my stomach <laughs> pain is still happening despite the whatever the left's in. It's like, oh, okay. If it's my note, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to try this next. If it's not, I'm like reading my note again. I'm like, well, yeah. exactly was I <laughs> So yeah, I think that's a great it's suggestion. True. And it's like all these like, I feel like for maybe for some people, these seem like small little tips, but they go so far. <laughs> And changing your like, they do, yeah, because uh, they save so much time. I, I think the other thing is you, you forget you are getting older. So you need <laughs> out. I need the help. Oh. I can't remember this stuff from day to day because so, I love how um, Janet, our, our amazing liver nurse, like. So you remember you saw this patient with whatever liver disease? I'm like, mm hmm, right. It's like at, at, at a big pause, and I, I, I can't remember. Like <laughs> some people, it comes right away, but like I need a little bit more, right? To right. Figure it out. So we're gonna talk about the scariest thing of being a junior <laughs> faculty, which is being on call on a weekend. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, that's probably one of the scariest thing when you're on call, you're the person in charge, right. everybody's asking you the questions, what should I do? You hope that you don't get anything challenging or acute. So how do you navigate that? What advice do you have for junior faculty that are going on through their first call ever? <laughs> I, I love this question because we all have really good we will never forget that first weekend. And every attending for the rest of their lives will always remember that first attending. And it's mainly in the hype in your head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the reality <laughs> is. You're going to be fine. Be positive. You'll get through it. You're well-trained. You did all this training. You've gone, you run codes in residency. Like all these things are there. You're going to be fine. That being said, it doesn't hurt to be well-prepared. Right. So the well-prepared means having and, and telling people in your trusted friend circles, I'm on call this weekend. I'm going to call you. Just lay it out there as an expectation. And I think it really helps. I think for me, the first weekend I, when I was on for liver transplant, I, I told Maureen Jonas, I'm going to call you. And I physically knew where she was going to be all day, every day. <laughs> so, I knew that she came in by 730 in the morning, but my I didn't have to round till eight. So I knew I had 30 minutes of Maureen unfettered to like <laughs> ask all my questions in Almost invariably, it was me just saying, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And she would just say two words. I agree. Yeah. And, it, I, and she didn't say anything else. And I'm like, is that it? She yeah, you're fine. Go ahead. You're, you're fine. And I think just having a trusted sounding board, someone who was there to listen to any overnight anxieties about the INR and should I, what should I do and all these things made such a big difference. And for all the new faculty there doing it, 
it, you'll be fine. And someday it'll be your pleasure to do the same for a junior colleague. And it, it's my pleasure to do the same. Like this July 4th, I, I was on vacation and one of our former transplant fellows just called me out of the blue because she had this very difficult case. And she just, she's like, I remember we did this once and I just want to just tell you what I'm thinking. It was a five minute conversation. It was, it ended with, and I, I agree. And that, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, it's going to be fine. Just remember, it's mainly in your head. And no one expects you to know everything. They expect you to reach out and ask questions if you need help. And I think it's not the days where if you don't ask questions, you're strong. Like we, we want, we're all colleagues with each other. We all care about the care of these patients. I mean, ask questions. It's okay. I think it's also, you always have some time to think about it. And if you don't, you can always ask for a little bit of time to think about it. If it's like another outside ED, like fortunately the stuff that we deal with, the vast majority of the time, we don't have to answer like this second. We can wait five right. minutes and look it up. And if it's a foreign body or whatever ingestion, you can look up what to do. And I, I totally agree with having someone. I like let, I think for me in the beginning, it's oftentimes Steve Sikora, shout out. So like, yeah. you know, I, I like told him beforehand, hey man, do you mind if I send you a text if I have problems? Of course. So having someone who knows to expect, I think that helps a lot and also made me feel so much better. We still have it until now. I mean, I'm yeah. two and a half years in, so I've stopped 10 years in, but I still have the people that I go to be like, ah, you know what? I just need to talk to somebody about it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'd rather probably with one, it seem like I don't know or somebody to say, oh, whatever, what are you thinking? Then not ask and right. then not treat the patient properly. And the other thing I felt patients are very appreciative when you tell them, let me look into that and get back to you instead of giving them an answer without knowing exactly. Yeah. And now that I'm a little bit farther down, I think patients really appreciate that you work at this practice or this medical center and you are using the the depth of the bench for the care of their child. They appreciate that you double check. This is my first inclination, (laughs) double checking with other people who agree and then if we keep it from the parent's perspective or the child's perspective, it's always a good thing. You're never going to go wrong. Yeah. People pretend that they know everything. Right. It's so easy to see through that. And then, okay, so the next question is like a little bit of a shift. A lot of people think, oh, my first job, this is like how it's going to be forever, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So for you, how has your job evolved since you first started that first year as an attending? You know what I mean? Is it like, is it, is what you start with what you're stuck with or can jobs evolve and how has yours evolved? Yeah, my job is really different now. So I finished fourth year transplant fellowship at Boston Children's. And when I signed on, there wasn't a transplant hepatology position available. So I signed on for a full GI position, even though I had training in something else. And then I asked to volunteer or have additional time on the transplant service. So I would keep my skills up. And over time, I did more, a little bit, a little more liver transplant and a little bit less GI. And it's taken some time, but I'm now at the 100% liver transplant job. So I'm exactly that example of that transition of the job over time. I never lost focus for what I wanted, but I used all that GI attending time as a growth experience. And I don't regret it. I think it was really helpful. It makes me a better physician today to have all that experience. And sometimes you have to trust in the learning experience of what you're doing now. And There's no job for the rest of your life. If we look at all the leaders in ASPGAN, they're never at the same place they started and their careers have shifted. And I think putting that kind of pressure on you when you're looking for a job that you think is going to be there for 30, like going to be exactly the 30 years means that you're not 
you're not growing and life is going to get more complicated over time. That is awesome. I didn't know that you started with a general GI job after investing a year training in this very, you know, specialized area, but you made it work. And I think that's like kind of going back to, you know, your priorities and then you have to like know what you value the most, whether it's family, location, and then you will be able to shape your career into your dream job, even if it's not exactly what you want when you start out. So that's really, I feel like that takes a lot of courage to like know like, hey, I will get where I want if I yeah. put, in the, put in the time and the work. It also takes some time of reflection to figure that out. I remember, I mean, I would sit with Alan a lot and be like, what do you want to do next? And I'm like, tell me what to do. There's no match. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do next. Like, no. you know, And it, it took some time to get my bearing for what I wanted because I'm really good at filling out applications. I can fill out anything you want applications, but when it tends to a self-directed next step, it takes some time. Be patient with yeah. yourself to figure that out. So we're talking about the challenges of being an attending. But what are the good things about being attending other than making more money? But what are the good things? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think it's really exciting. It's like, welcome to the NFL. Like you're finally, (laughs) right? You put in all this work, all that med school and training and service and research and all. Now you get to, you get to do it and and your life is no longer in blocks of three years or four years. Like it's the rest of your life and it's all up to you. And, and. You, now you finally get to pull in all the different parts of what you've developed, the best clinical care, the innovative ideas or research agendas. It's all there now. And it's super exciting. It's it's humbling. And you always are learning. It's the best. It's so worth it. And I'm looking forward to all these new graduates experiencing it, too. It is the best, even beyond. Yes, yeah. money, making more money definitely is also great. <laughs> but yeah, because you're it. They're, That's true. they're patient and like they... I know. Anyways, I honestly love being an attending. I yeah. think being an attending is better than being a fellow. Being a fellow is better than being a resident. I think as time progresses, it gets better. That's my opinion. Yes, it is awesome. <laughs> and then so thinking about how do we help people with this transition, which I honestly felt when I was going through it, it was something that people did not really talk about. It was yeah. kind of like, oh, you made it. Figure it out. You'll be fine. But no one really talked about like, that's kind of challenging, actually, making this big adjustment. But OK, so how can fellowship programs and how can NASP begin help with this transition process? Is it talking about it? What are other things that people can do? I think fellowships realize that fellowship is a tricky balance between offering sort of necessary supervision, but also allowing graded autonomy and helping them develop the research and clinical skills and getting them closer to attendingship. Fellowships can really help their learners by offering personalized assessments and support for different things that everybody needs to get them at the best faculty or the next step job, whatever they're going to use. So fellows should reach out and ask for it. Fellowships should help them out. And they, because we all want our graduates to be set up for success. On a national level, there have been, uh, I think the fellows conferences have really done a good job of trying to have different learning objectives at different conferences. When I was a fellow, the third year fellows conference was tend to be more of a research oriented thing. And I think a, a huge shift happened when people were asking for more of a professional development step. And so third year fellows conference now is a job, a faculty for development kind of conference. And then what I'm thrilled about is that NASPGAN and the NASPGAN Foundation now is bringing back this junior faculty conference that it's been, I think, 10 plus years since the last one. It's super exciting. That's great. Yeah, it's for people who are two to seven years out of fellowship 
to come and to exactly talk about either work-life balance things, but also professional development challenges for this junior faculty when you're trying to make that next step. And I think that one is coming in early December. It's uh, it, it's going to be a really great time. And I think it's the next and a step of a huge series of professional development from Teaching Tomorrow, Fellows Conferences, Junior Faculty. So Will this be a yearly thing? Uh, that's a question for Margaret Stallings. But <laughs> I, know, I think the funding is available for this year. And I think okay. it's just a huge success so that we can Make the make the good case that it's a great thing to have in the mass began album material. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing. Tamara, did you already apply? Yeah, yeah I also <laughs> already applied because I think this is my maybe my last year. Depending on like motility fellowship, how the years work, I may have one year left. But yeah. yes, everyone I know at our institution has already applied. That fits the criteria. <laughs> I think you'll have a lot of demand because I think people recognize the need. But no, that is that is awesome. I didn't realize it was like a thing that was happening in the past and came back. My understanding, and I, I can't remember the year, but I heard about it from Alan. It was maybe 10 plus years ago, maybe longer than that now, but it was a huge success. But it, trying to get the funding and, and all that stuff is always a challenge. But now we're thrilled to have it again this year. That's exciting. Looking back at your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you received and what advice do you give for our listeners? It seems a little trite, but I think it's really practical. It's... Uh-huh. Do what you love. Anything that you do has to be worth the time away from your family, your personal life. It has to be something that it keeps you fulfilled, inspired, and energized. And it didn't, it's fun. It doesn't feel so much like work. Uh, I remember there was some very good intentioned people who at one point suggested that I maybe consider either streamlining hepatology or education, but maybe not both. Mm. And when I reflected on what brings me joy, I couldn't do it. I I needed the mix is exactly what makes me so happy. And I'm so happy I didn't take that to take those suggestions because I I remember what I love to do. And I think it's really important. Yeah. You need to be true to yourself. People always are wanting to give advice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. They don't know you the way that you do or maybe your closest mentors do. So I think especially as an attending, it's there's so much like freedom slash possibilities that you really need to know yourself to be able to guide your path yeah that has been an awesome conversation yeah like (laughs) i could talk about this for another like several hours but i'm sure you have stuff to do but so once again thank you so much for joining us on the podcast any final words for our listeners i think for the newest graduates i would say welcome and good luck to the mass began faculty community i think we're so proud of you and you guys are going to do great and we're all just rooting for you. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a fun roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's all worth it. It's all worth In it. In like a fun, great way with some dips, but a lot yeah. of going yeah. up. But, anyways. <laughs> yeah. but yes, thanks again. It was great Thank to talk so to you. Thank you so much. This is so fun. See yeah, you soon. Thank you. Appreciate Hopefully. it. Appreciate you joining us. Well, that was a great episode. Hopefully the new junior faculty learned something from this and know that everything's going to be okay. We've all been through this. We've all been through this. Yes, everything will be okay. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, It would really help us if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast, or two, or three, or four, or everybody. 
to leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our lovely, lovely podcast. <laughs> and three, <laughs> on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. You didn't do it that quickly. <laughs> I know. I tried to talk normally. Okay. Okay. Let me try it. All right. So right now, I'm going to try to go. I'm going to time it. Okay. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests are subject to change with advances in the field. That was like... Four seconds. That was like four seconds. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.